a lot of what red wine making really amounts to is trying to sort of match that peak in aromatic aspects with the right mouthfeel characteristics, the softening of it, so that you can enjoy the wine fully. Hello and welcome to Disgorged, a fun and spirited look at the world of wine and drinking. I'm your host, Zach Chabal, and coming up on the show today, I speak with Dr. James Harbertson about tannins, aromatic compounds, and the science of winemaking. We'll get to that in a moment, but first, a thought. The more I learn about the science of wine, the more I realize that there's a whole lot of bullshit out there. Whether it's nonsensical claims about sulfite allergies, old wives' tales about which varietals give you worse hangovers, or even the more modern assumptions about certain varietals, Wine has only really been studied seriously for a short period of time, and it's been fascinating to learn how much we don't actually know. Whether it's starting to identify and classify the various aromatic compounds in wine, developing a deeper understanding of how tannins function in the life of a wine, or even the ways in which different varietals have distinct ripening curves, the study of enology is vital to the future of the wine industry. Fortunately, there are more and more programs and schools devoting serious time and money to those and other questions. Yet it's also important not to fetishize the science too much. While winemakers trained in enology have certain advantages, there's a danger in relying too much on academic learning at the expense of real-life experience. Many of the best winemakers in the world are fascinated by the science, but still trust in their own senses. They taste grapes to determine when to pick, and while they might look at fermentation charts for hours, in the end, it's their instinct that they lean on when problems arise. There are no magic bullets or perfect solutions, which means that a broad knowledge base is the best way to make great wine. And hey, if you like great wine and live in Seattle, check out my brand new pop-up wine bar, Disgorged. I'm open Tuesday nights on top of Queen Anne Hill, serving fun and interesting wines. For more information, please visit www.disgorgedwine.com. And now on with the show. Joining me today on Disgorged is the Associate Professor of Enology at Washington State University. That's Dr. James Harbertson. Uh, Jim, thanks so much for joining me today. I appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So um, I have to say, I, your name first crossed my, my path uh, a little while ago. Um, I was tasting one of the new projects um, through uh, Columbia Crest, uh, the Intrinsic uh, Wine, um, and Juan, the winemaker, was telling me um, that he sort of consulted with you on this really kind of extended maceration process that those wines go through and and this whole idea of sort of manipulating or I guess altering the tannin structure through this really extended maceration and I it kind of had me thinking as he and I were talking like damn I don't really know a whole lot about tannins I mean I know I understand them from sort of a sommelier and and wine writer perspective but sort of scientifically I I mean I wouldn't pass a test or anything so so maybe if if you don't mind starting just with a a brief sort of description of of what are tannins and and um, and how do they um, how do they act in a sort of uh, biologic uh, way. Sure. Well, tannins are pretty much found in most plants of some, in some form or another. They're a pretty diverse class of compounds. But the thing that the attribute that's shared amongst all tannins is their ability to bind and precipitate protein. So in some plants, they're kind of thought of as being made more or less to sort of as an anti-herbivory kind of thing. And the uh, the reason behind this is that, um, say for instance, you're a plant and um, there's something like a mold or something coming along or you get a wound on you, some, or maybe whatever, you get a wound on the plant, cut comes on there, um, you start getting cells breaking and leaking out. And basically, or even 
maybe not even a hole. Something comes along like a mold and it wants to digest you as a plant. And so it exudes some extracellular enzymes that will go in there and chew stuff up of yours. And so it can then bring it back into its cell and consume you. And so these, these tannins basically were created, or I don't know, they kind of evolved over time, essentially. It's had to, you don't really want to anthropomorphize for plants. Mm-hmm. You don't want to sort of make them think like people. But the idea that we can see that them doing is that these enzymes, these digestive enzymes, are inhibited by these tannins. They bind to them, and they remove their activity. They stop them from being active. Um, and so thereby preventing the mold or whatever from, you know, digesting you. Well, and the cool part about that, they will precipitate. And so more or less, it'll bind the protein and it'll make kind of like a, it'll dry out and make a crust, if you will. And kind of like almost in some ways, you can kind of think of it like it can some ways sort of form like a scab, essentially. I mean, there's a lot of other enzymes that the plant, plant has that it, will digest, that it will send out as well. But one of the, the, the tannins are certainly helpful um, in terms of helping to start making that kind of scabby thing on the outside of a plant and prevent things from happening. Now, that's a far cry from what we think of when we're drinking wine and we're talking about tannins, clearly, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, um, but, I mean, they're there basically to kind of, you know, prevent things from eating. You know, in, in people, we just seem to kind of like the fact that they do do the same sorts of things in our mouth. They will. There are proteins in our mouth, um, whole lots of different kinds. Some of them are digestive enzymes, but we actually make specialized proteins called proline-rich proteins um, that will bind and precipitate them. And so if you ever uh, want to or not want to gaze into the spit bucket after you've had some red wine, Mm -hmm. I don't um, recommend looking at it too long, but you'll see some of those kinds of complexes that are formed between the tannins and the proteins. And they are kind of long and stringy, kind of weird looking, and sometimes they're even pigmented because there are tannins that actually have anthocyanins or pigments incorporated into them. And so they'll make these kind of weird red sort of structures. Mm-hmm. But that's the same sort of things that are happening in your mouth. Essentially, astringency, which is what we sort of think of uh, when we have tannins in our mouth, is sort of the drying out, if you will, of your mouth. So it's a feel. So you're actually, your, your mouth is finally aware that, you know, the coating of things that normally is keeping it all smooth and slick has been interfered with. And so it gets rough in there because that, that layer of lubrication has been disrupted, if you will, by the tannins when you're ingesting them. Yeah. So is there yeah. is there a significant uh, structural difference? I mean, a- again, as a sort of a wine person, I think sure. of tannins as coming from two different sources. You sort of think of, um, mm-hmm. you know, grape tannins as in tannins that are present in the skins and stems uh, potentially mm-hmm. if they're used in fermentation. And then obviously tannins mm-hmm. that are in oak barrels if they're being used. Are right. they, are they, discernibly different are they fairly similar and 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 if and if and maybe just a little bit more about what what the differences are if they do exist sure so the tannins in um, grape skins and seeds and compared to the ones that are in oak barrels uh, they're very different um, kind of they're very different sort of like apples and oranges but they're still kind of within the same class because they have that ability that shared ability to precipitate protein but structurally and chemically they're very different um, so the tannins in grape skins and seeds are known as condensed tannins. Um, the technical term for them is proanthocyanidins. We don't need to get into that part of it. But <laughs> I'll save that. I'll save that for my uh, other podcast. Sure, sure. They're a whole host of these crazy polymers, essentially, and they're pretty diverse. And the skin tannins are quite large, and the seed tannins are much smaller. And the larger the tannin is, we understand that the better it is and more efficient it is at at doing that binding and precipitating of the protein we were talking about earlier. Um, and so the skin tans are actually really, um, really quite 
quite astringent, and the ones that are from the seeds are less so. And then the smaller the polymer gets, uh, to the point where the monomers, which are actually not tannins because they don't bind to precipitate protein, uh, they're actually quite bitter. So the, 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 we kind of they kind of get mixed up in the, in the nomenclature of these things. We kind of tend to mix them together, but so that they're kind of bitter and astringent. Now the the tannins that come out of the barrel are known as hydrolyzable tannins. All right, and these tannins um, they bind to precipitate protein very differently. They're not as effective or efficient at it. Um, they're sort of what we call a hydrophobic interaction between the tannin and the protein. I'm sorry, that's a lot of chemistry. I will try to step that back that's a little okay. bit. So the um, so essentially, the uh, the hydrolyzable tannins they uh, they're known as being hydrolyzable because they actually fall apart over time. They actually will, in under acidic conditions, what like wine, the polymers will just sort of fall apart over time. So initially, when you have wine in barrels, um, those tannins will kind of get extracted, right? But mm-hmm. uh, and you get a you kind of get a hit of the the, the the tannin that's there, but over time it diminishes quite dramatically, and so you don't really tend to get. Uh, a big hit. It's uh, sort of thought of as being the tannins coming from barrels as being sort of synergistic with the tannins from the grapes because the tannins in the grapes are, are present in a much higher concentrations typically, mm-hmm. um, sometimes almost 10 to 20 fold higher concentrations. Mm-hmm. And the structures are more stable to acid essentially. They're still, they still have issues with acid and they will rearrange themselves structurally over time and they uh, will, and both stru- both both types of structures will will react with oxygen and things. But um, the the condensed tannins coming from the grape are thought to be really the tannins that we are really tasting in the wine. The ones from the barrel are thought to be sort of participating in the astringent sensation, but not really the main drivers mm-hmm. of it, if you if you will. So and is that especially as, is that especially the case uh, the sort of the older the wine is, um, if there's any you know sort of uh, discernible tannin or, or, you know, especially that you can sort of, uh, feel it comes from the, uh, the oak when the wine is young, that over time that, that tannin, if it sounds like, I mean, if it, if it sort of, um, breaks down sooner, it's probably harder and harder to pick up, uh, the older the wine gets. Yeah, right. So exactly. So, um, and, and this all also depends on how we made the wine to begin with. So if you, did something, say for instance, you made a really light red wine with hardly any tannin extraction from the skins and seeds, and then you put it in a barrel, well, that's your main source of tannins, right? Yeah. So in that case, there's a big hit from the barrel tannins, but that will diminish over time quite rapidly the same way as it would in another kind of wine, all right? So it will seem tannic at first, and then it will go away. And then it won't be very tannic. You'll still have some nice mouthfeel characteristics and aroma characteristics from the barrel. Whereas if you had a, like a an, like an extended maceration tannic wine, that wine is going to be really tannic from the skins and seeds, and uh, the contribution from the barrel is going to be very small comparatively. Mm-hmm. It will primarily the contribution from the barrel in that case is just about aging and trying to soften up those those tans you have from the grape skins and seeds, and then also the contribution of the aroma part from the barrel, which is very important to the wine. Um, so yeah, so, I mean, you, those are two just different examples where, wow, one really outweighs the other one and the mm-hmm. other one's kind of the dominant character. Okay. Yeah. So with those condensed tannins or the tannins from the, uh, skins and, uh, seeds, um, uh-huh. do you find that they are fairly similar across varietals or, or even within a different set of varietals of, uh, let's say red grapes, you're finding very different, uh, tannins or, or are they pretty constant? You know, that's a very good question. And, um, it's, I don't know if it's totally understood whether that's true or we mean whether they're constant or not. I think we tend to think of them as being quite similar. 
Um, but the interesting thing is that different varieties tend to make wines with different concentrations in them. And it's not clear if that's a, an issue to do with the, the, how much is in the fruit or how much is in the wine, uh, how much is being extracted by the winemaker due mm. to the preference of the consumer. And I, ha- I actually t- tend to sort of go towards the latter explanation that a lot of it has to do with how people have sort of buy wines and winemakers make wines. There are certain kind, certain concentrations of tannins due to preference, essentially, mm-hmm. because, I mean, a lot of grapes have a lot of tannins. I mean, there's a lot of tannins and skins and seeds of grapes. There's so much so that, the, I mean, if you extracted all of it, it would make something extraordinarily unbearable. And so you kind of winemaking, uh, like a lot of other kinds of alcoholic beverages in some ways for the tannins is an exercise in subtlety. So you're just trying to extract a certain amount and not get too much um, because you could really, if you, if you, I mean, if you pulverize the grape skins or seeds or something like that on a horrible grinder or something, you could extract way too much of that stuff mm-hmm. and you would make something really unpleasant, you know? Yeah. So, so speaking of sort of extraction of tannins and whatnot, um, you know, mm-hmm. I think, um, again, to kind of come back to what, uh, what first, uh, sure. put me in touch with you, this, this idea of this, like, I, I think mm-hmm. in the case of the intrinsic wines, like a nine month maceration process and, mm-hmm. and what Juan was explaining to me was, um, sort of that, you know, the, the tannins, um, you know the the grape skins and seeds, or probably not seeds. I don't think they're doing anything. Well, or at least some skin uh, seed contact. In any case, the the tannins are initially, um, you know, sort of absorbed into the the juice of the wine, and and they're present there. And then if you leave the um, the skins in contact for a long enough period of time, eventually they sort of reabsorb those tannins. Can can you maybe talk a little bit about that process and 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 whether I've completely sure. butchered the explanation? No problem. So the so the. Well, extraction process of tannins is actually not really extraction per se. We kind of call it that, but it's it's sort of a complex process of both extraction, where they're coming out of they're coming in, they're being the cells are being broken, right, and then things are coming out. But then there are a whole host of things that the grapes are have in them already, uh, polysaccharides and proteins and things. And they will interact with the tannins that are coming from the skins and seeds. And so you kind of think of it, I kind of think of it like you have a, a fairly significant sized sponge, if you will, mm-hmm. of things that are sticking, that are going to stick to the tannins. And that's, that sponge has to, be, has to be satisfied, it has to be filled up before any other tannin can really get into the wine, if you will. And so you kind of have a double process. And so with the extended maceration that Juan's talking about, we know that when you do extended maceration that the tannin structure compared to the tannin structures, I mean the sizes of them, are quite radically different than that if you just did a 10-day maceration. So if you did a 10-day maceration um, versus a you know 30 or 40-day maceration, this, the tannins that you primarily are getting in the wine uh, for the extended maceration are much smaller, and there's a lot more of them. Um, and they tend to come from the seed if, um, and so you gotta get a, a seed, more seed predominant extraction. Um, and I am hoping that we can actually study Juan's experiment a bit more. We've actually planned to do uh, one of my own on sort of a crazy uh, extended maceration because there's a lot of unknowns there. But one of the things that's sort of theorized is, as you suggested, that the skins and all that that sponge sort of over time is getting He's just exchanging tannins and slowly just absorbing it. You're just almost like breaking up some of the cells and exposing more bits of sponge that are coming out that you wouldn't have otherwise had. There's also a whole host of other things that are being sort of broken down in the grape skins while you're doing that extended maturation, especially for the as long as nine months. There are cell wall 
polysaccharides, all sorts of other compounds that are coming in there, maybe not interacting with tannins, and they're just soluble, sort of um, you know, changing things. And not only that, you've also got all those yeast leaves that are probably present there because you haven't racked away from those. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of really interesting uh, cell wall proteins, uh, glycoproteins that are coming apart. And those also are well known to do some pretty uh, good things for wine mouthfeel. I mean, you, you see that in things like uh, some barrel fermented Chardonnays and also in some champagnes. And uh, that, that yeast lees characteristic is kind of a, a good one for, for wine. Yeah, ways. absolutely. No, it was, it was really interesting to, to taste those wines and, to, and then to learn a little bit about the process and how, how you, know, you get kind of sure. a lot of that richer mouthfeel without, you know, and I'm, and I'm mm-hmm. pretty sure that there's no uh, new oak on that wine at all. And yet it has sort of some of that richer texture that you often associate with. I mean, obviously you can do barrel ferments and, and use barrels and then obviously that's how, sort of how it goes. But yeah, it was really, it was cool. And it was just a, such an interesting approach and it, and it kind of yeah. does, it does sort of make you realize that like, uh, and this is actually a sort of a, maybe a transition that I wanted to make. Like we think of, um, I, I tend to think of like, oh, you know, this stuff is probably very well understood by someone, you know, the science has probably all been done. And it sounds like, you know, in, in a lot of these kind of, uh, situations, whether it's with uh, tannin structures or, or the way that extended maceration works, that, that you guys, this is something that is actively being studied, is not you know in a textbook somewhere and, and well understood and, and established. Absolutely. I think um, you kind of have to think of it, yeah, people did extended maceration experiments, you know, 50, 60, whatever, 100 years ago, several hundred years ago, right? But, you know, as they, they could measure tannins, but more kind of like, oh, yeah, we had a very simple way to measure the tannins. And maybe it wasn't that good. And over time, you know, chemical methods improve. The kinds of questions that we're asking change. The kinds of things that we're doing in production um, are different. I mean, uh, the ability to have a wine sit on skins for nine months and not oxidize. Well, somebody might have been able to do that maybe 50 years ago, but they probably would have thought it was, you know, cost prohibitive. Um, Now, with more modern winemaking, boy, you can do a lot of these things and experiment and play around with it. And I think it's really novel and a really great idea to do this sort of thing, to sort of push the boundaries, especially for me. The other part, what's also happening during this time period, is not just the tannin structures binding into the cell wall proteins and all that other part. The fact that the uh, the anthocyanins and the tannins are also making polymeric pigments, and these are these sort of stable color compounds that are found in red wines that are really old. So a young red wine is going to be very dark purple and kind of reddish maybe. But those are that that color is coming primarily from just the normal pigments by themselves, or maybe some co-pigmentation where they're interacting with other compounds and giving you extra color, neat new colors, which is kind of cool, like in flowers. But over time, in wines, that color, those anthocyanins stacking and things come apart, and either the anthocyanins just get oxidized and go away, or degrade in some other way, or they can interact with tannin polymers and some other compounds, and they make what we call polymeric pigments. They end up being what our stable color is. And the other part that's interesting for us about this is that it changes, or we believe it changes, its ability to interact with these salivary proteins in your mouth and makes the wine less astringent, essentially. Hmm. So interesting. it contributes to the, that softening that we get in older wines. And um, this particular experiment for me is really a great one to sort of go after that effect because it's a really cool effect that um, a lot of us sort of think happens, but we don't have a lot of good chances to sort of watch it happen in a really interesting way that, and like that, especially for nine months. We know that uh, polymeric pigments are formed rather rapidly, so within like the first year in the life of the wine, most of it's being made. And so, boy, 
the the extent of maceration like that, the conditions are going to be a little bit different than when they're in a barrel, and you get a lot of other things potentially going on. So it should be it's exciting, I think, from a from a, a wine chemistry wine nerd perspective, if you will. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Sounds interesting to me too. I mean, I, I find the the sort of the science behind it um, the, and the understanding thereof to be really useful in in understanding then how that translates to you know the sort of more casual experience of drinking or uh smelling wine or whatever um sure and, and speaking speaking kind of broadly of that um i feel like one and, and you know i don't know to what extent this is something you yourself study or just maybe are a little bit aware of but one of the I think that really interesting conversations going on in sort of um wine in sommelier circles and whatnot is really about um aromatic compounds and kind of the idea mm-hmm of why do why do wines smell the way they do why do certain wines smell different from others and, and i think you see this with both mm-hmm. whites and reds for sure um so um if it's if you have a, a a moment to talk about kind of um what some of those aromatic compounds are or or, or how they kind of vary in where, maybe even where in the in the grapes themselves they're they're produced or or if they're or how they sure. kind of come to be sure well i mean the the aromatic compounds are primarily located in the skins of the grapes and um so during the you know the crushing of the fruit um you can get contact with them so the, the sort of the thing about white wine production is typically you are not allowing there to be much skin contact right because you're afraid that there's since there's also phenolics there that you don't want to extract it and strangely enough the uh, the technique that is widely used in some of the red wine production known as cold soak where you are taking you know grape skins and see you know and crushing the fruit and then soaking it at cold temperatures uh, was actually developed for white wine making because they the people that were making these aromatic whites like rieslings and gewurztraminers that have um, particular sets of of kind of aroma compounds that are super flavorful and fruity and all these kinds of nice descriptors and maybe even uh, perfumey are in the skins. And if you want to get them, you have to have contact with the skins to get those wonderful aromas, right? Mm-hmm. So they, those wines actually will do some skin contact in them to try to extract those out. But they'll do it cold so that way they don't get too many of the phenolics out of there. And then they kind of have to treat the wine later potentially if it gets too bitter. But it's part of the process itself because with grape, red grapes, you're always going to do that extraction. So for the most part, you don't have to ever worry about not getting enough of that aromatic component. But with white wine, it's more of a balance where you're trying to get enough aromatic characteristics into the, into the musk with a, with, by, and then also avoiding uh, the phenolic component. And there are a whole host of aromatic compounds, as you can well imagine. And uh, there's it's, in some circles, they kind of think of them as being certain classes of them we don't need to get into the different classes i don't think there's a lot of chemistry there which i'm sure your listeners are going to be happy i'm sparing them (laughs) but um they're basically just a whole host of them and 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 you can kind of tell when you when you when with wine it's kind of unique because you can smell things that are what you would not necessarily associate with it so for instance normally our brain associates things like strawberry with strawberry right not yeah. uh, you know in wine and that always makes it overly complicated but um the the compounds that are in you know actual strawberries are sometimes actually found in wine sometimes a subset of it and so mm. it's kind of interesting that you know grapes have in them a bunch of these kinds of aroma kind of compounds that are in other species essentially you know 
which is, I think, fascinating. I, but, and I'm missing kind of one of the big points, though, and I, I, should, I should digress and go back to it. But the, I guess what's also interesting about um, grapes is that all of these you know, wonderful aroma compounds that we typically taste in the wine later on are found in the grapes as bound precursors. Okay, hmm. so that they're actually stuck with the sugar to it. Okay. And over time, as the wine ages, that sugar comes off a lot like that hydrolyzable tannin comes apart, similar kind of, of mechanism. And then suddenly that sugar stops it from being soluble in water. And now, boom, it can escape from the, uh, the water alcohol system that's in it and you can smell it. Okay? Oh, okay. And so basically the fruit, a lot of times, doesn't taste anything like the wine that is made from it. Mm-hmm. And so this is where you kind of have winemakers are kind of in some ways like craftsmen because they've had lots of experience and they've tasted these things. And despite the fact that they taste, I mean, completely and utterly different from the the actual product, they kind of know what it's going to be like when they pick at certain times, right? Yeah. Is that removal of sugar, is that is that a, a, a fermentation uh, process some or of it happens due to the enzymes that are in different yeast strains, for sure. There's some of that that goes on, and some of it actually just happens just due to the fact that the wine has acid in it, and as the bonds um, of those chemical structures are broken due to the acid being there. Okay. Very cool. And, the, yeah, there are some different yeast strains who, that will do some of that, and there's actually enzymes that you can add during the winemaking process to cleave some of those bonds as well. Uh, many of a, I think many people in the wine industry are kind of not so keen on that. They'd rather kind of allow it to go through the natural process because you could, in many ways, make a wine that's too aromatic early and then it would miss its peak in terms of its its, its good drinking time. You know, mm-hmm. so you kind of want it to happen more normally. Yeah. So that, so there is there's sort of an almost an aging curve uh, with aromatic compounds as well. That's um, right. Interesting. Yeah, and you know if we want to bring this all the way back to full circle where we started with the tannins, a lot of what red winemaking really amounts to is trying to sort of match that peak in aromatic aspects with the right mouthfeel characteristics, the softening of it so that you could enjoy the wine fully, right? So the job of the red winemaker is to give you the right aromatic characteristics at the time with the barrel and the fruit flavors from the grapes, maybe some veggie ones, peppery ones, whatever else, right? The smoky mm-hmm. things. But also having a astringency that is manageable. So yeah. it's not so astringent that you have to wait, you know, another five years. And then by that time, some of these aromatic components, these they will be transformed. And now instead of being wonderful, bright, you know, you know raspberries with a little veggie or whatever, they are now football leather or whatever, you know, and cigar <laughs> yeah. and all that other stuff. And so you kind of, and then the tannins are softened, right? And then you can approach the wine because it's no longer so astringent, but all the wonderful fruit compounds are all gone. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of the job of the winemaker to decide what kind of product that they're trying to make and how long they're going to age it. And is that really what they're going for? Okay. Right. So that I think kind of wraps it all up into a big ball for you. Very <laughs> nice. Very nice. What, one, uh, one other question, uh, for you, which is, uh, how did you personally get into wine? I mean, did you, did you, were you a wine lover and then decided to study the science of it or were you, did the science sort of lead you to wine? You know, it's an interesting one for me because I, I was going to UC Davis and I was a biochemistry major amongst, you know, probably 35 or 40% of the rest of the school body is biochemistry person. And I, I think I had taken a lot of art classes simultaneously. And so I was really into art. And uh, at Davis, you were kind of forced to take these sort of general ed courses. And uh, there was a, an inf- at, at Davis, there was the viticulture 
three, they called it, then three. And it was an introduction to wine, to viticulture and enology. And, this, and the instructor for that class was none other than Ann Noble. Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> and uh, I, I sat in that class and I was just blown away. A, a she was a, just a magnificent lecturer. She's just one of the most articulate people you'll ever meet. And she just doesn't use the word um and uh most when she's on the she says exactly what she means to say and it was just amazing and she got me just wrapped I was just astonished I was so fascinated I loved the fact that I could combine all the things I've been learning about chemistry in one field and I think more and at the time I was really you know idealistic I was a college student you know I was I didn't want to work for some big corporation or something I was sort of wanted to have more expressive freedom and I thought man wine could be really fun. And I thought, well, I should go look into this. So I, I went over to her office and I said, hey, you know, I'd, I'm, I'm, I've got some skills. I could possibly work in your lab or something. And she looked at me and she says, you're a biochemist. Mm. Interesting. And then she basically sent me downstairs to this gentleman uh, known as Doug Adams. And uh, I never looked back. I eventually got a PhD with Doug. And um, we just found a, she introduced me to the right person. And I really loved wine i really have, i'm a super taster as well so i i have extra taste buds which is a good and bad thing sometimes yeah. and i've just i love food i love wine and i love science and i love art and it all combines into one fantastic beverage in the culture and everything else with wine so i feel very privileged and lucky to do what i do as a job in terms of being an academic i never imagined i would do it i thought i might just be a winemaker somewhere but um I'm an academic, I suppose. Well, it doesn't mean you can't start making wine. After all, the beginning of the Washington wine industry was all academics anyhow. Yeah, well, we do a lot of winemaking here, and I think right now my, my skill set is sort of to help everybody in the state is sort of where I'm in the right position. I, I'm able to sort of do these really wonderful experimental designs in a fantastic facility. Um, I just sort of I just found out the other day that we, my group won another award for paper of the year from the American Journal of Enology and Viticulture for oh, some work that we've done. So we're very pleased and we're able to do really high quality work here in, in Washington and provide and sort of share that with the industry and help them make, you know, more world-class wines. It's a very unique place in Washington in terms of making some fantastic wines. We're pretty lucky. I've been to yeah. a lot of other places and boy, we've got it good in terms of our climate. Yes, for sure. <laughs> And I lied. Actually, I have one more question for you. Uh, but talking about sure. the Washington wine industry, so uh, if you had your druthers, what what one? Mm -hmm. Maybe if it's either a, just one or a white and a red varietal, would you like to see more people growing uh, and making wine from here? You know, I I don't tend to sort of make those kinds of judgments myself. Mm -hmm. I know the things I like, but I know that the choices that are made in the industry are largely based on you know business decisions, and you know people can whether people buy these things. And I also realize the American palate's not totally grown up yet in terms of it's wine-loving, and I'm hoping that it will change over time. Mm -hmm. But I, I honestly really love cab from Washington. I, if people were going to plant more cab, I'd be pretty happy. I, I mean, I grew up with my, my, my young career in wine really loving Pinot Noir, but I realized that Pinot Noir is not really going to do very well in Washington. It's too hot. It's too dry. So... I say we do what we do best, and cab is one of those things that we do great. Mm -hmm. um, and from a white perspective, I would love to see more sparkling wine because I love yeah. champagne. But um, I recognize that the American, you know, we just don't drink champagne or sparkling wine the same way that they do in Europe. 
and um, we're just not there yet. We still see it as something that we use as a celebratory thing. And um, I'd like to see us using it more as an aperitif. And I think, I think bubbles go well with practically everything, in my opinion. They do. Even if they're not any good, you can make them into cocktails. So, <laughs> That's right. Um, so I, I, those are my things I would ask for. But I'd like to see, if we're going to make sparkling wines, I would like to see people doing more method champenoise, more lees aging, more you know vintage style, more things that are complicated, less sort of just fruit-forward sparkling wines that are rather dull, in my opinion. Yeah. Excellent. Well, Jim, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Really fascinating uh, conversation. I'm going to have to listen to it about three more times until I feel like I understand it, but that's good. No problem. I hope that, I, that most of it's clear. And if you have any you know, questions or anything and want to get more in-depth, I'm happy to call. We can chat again, and I'm happy to re-record anything if you want a clarity, okay? <laughs> no, no worries. It's all good. Thank you so much. Appreciate your time. You're welcome. Thanks again to Dr. James Harbertson of Washington State University for joining me on Disgorged. To stay in touch, check out www.disgorgedwine.com or find me on social media, either at Disgorged Wine or at Zegeball. That's Z-G-E-B-A-L-L-E. Thanks so much for listening, and cheers.